the changing of the seasons. Spring to summer, summer to autumn, autumn to winter, then spring returns. And with spring's return, right along with the blooming of the flowers and the chirping of the baby birds, that's right, quarterly tax filings. On today's episode of the Fiona Show Tax Provision Podcast, we'll be talking to tax provision expert Howard Telson all about the quarterly provision, how it's similar, and in what ways it's distinct from the annual provision. Howard, welcome back to the show. Hey, Matt. Glad to be back. So in previous episodes, you've spoken about how the income tax provision is calculated, but we haven't gone into much detail about where the provision is reported, that is, forms 10K and 10Q for U.S. public companies. What are these forms used for exactly? What do they contain? And what are the differences between them? Yeah, so, you know, I think first off, when you reference Form 10Q and and Form 10K, I I just want to clarify that these are U.S. regulatory filings for U.S. public companies. And the majority of, you know, I think what we're going to be talking about today will be focused on interim or quarterly reporting and the tax provision calculations with regard to quarterly and then we'll compare and contrast annual, but really from a U.S. perspective. And before kind of diving into the details surrounding this U.S. reporting, I did want to just know as an aside that foreign companies also may have quarterly or interim financial statement filing requirements as well. And however, one thing to note is these generally aren't required by the international standards by IFRS and are really subject to individual country requirements. And for the most part, these individual countries actually don't require detailed reporting uh, for the quarters. So some foreign companies still do have to complete financial statements on the quarters, and some of these will include some tax provision calculations. However, typically these are more for internal purposes or some other purposes outside of kind of regulatory requirements. So therefore, this is kind of all to say that interim or quarterly reporting, while still certainly applicable in some cases to foreign countries, it's really more of a focus in the U.S. than it is abroad. So I just wanted to give that caveat. And then, you know, further to that point, when we talk about the, the 10Q and the 10K, these are truly U.S. public company reports. U.S. private companies generally have similar financial statement filings on both, you know, a quarterly and annual basis. And they generally hold, you know, many of the same traits as these forms that we're talking about today. But these are a bit less detailed and less stringent for the most part. So with both of those asides, let's shift over to your specific question regarding what are the 10Q and what are the 10K and what do they contain? So first off, the 10Q and 10K are both regulatory filings required of U.S. publicly traded companies by the SEC, so by the Securities and Exchange Commissions. The 10K is the annual. So 10K is the annual report, generally containing 12 months, a full year of activity, while 10Q is the quarterly report which includes year-to-date information for each quarter, so quarters one through three. So just if we take a quick example, if we had a calendar year company, they would have three 10Qs during the year. The first one would be January 1st to March 31st. That would be Q1. The second quarter would cover January 1st, so back to the beginning of the year, all the way to June 30th. So it is a year-to-date kind of report. And then the last one would cover January 1st to September 31st, uh, to September 30th. So that would be Q3, and that would cover the full nine months of Q3, so full year to date. And then, you know, obviously the 10Q, the 10K, uh, I should say, the 10K, the annual report, would cover the full year, January 1st to December 31st. So you could see that the reporting, you know, basically builds upon each other. You know, each quarter 
builds upon the next and you will get to this cumulative reporting where you go from three months to six months to nine months to ultimately the 12 months, the full boat in the 10K. So now that we have some background as to the time frame covered for each of these types of reports, let's double click on this for a second and break down what exactly goes into these reports. And we could start with the 10K first, which is really the more detailed report of the two. So the 10K, you know, holistically is really a great resource to just learn about a company, both from a business perspective and, you know, obviously digging into their financials. It's just a wealth of information. And this generally starts with an overview of the business. So providing a summary of the product lines or service offerings of a business, providing some background on its subsidiaries, its organizational structure. It also gets into the company's history, its accounting policies, any recent transactions like an acquisition or a disposition, its risk factors, its legal proceedings. Pretty much everything you would want to know about a company is kind of in this overview of the business in terms of, you know, the background of the company. And then kind of following this informational component, Typically, the 10K will go ahead and dive into a section called MD&A, or Management Discussion and Analysis. And this is really an area where management can kind of tell their story of the company and how it is performing. So this is really a tax provision podcast, so we're obviously you know, very focused on tax here. So you know, one thing to note is a big piece of the MD&A section, at least as far as income tax is concerned, is this is the area where management generally explains what impacted their income tax position in a kind of material way, what their rate drivers are. So what's driving their effective tax rate up or down? How did that ETR change quarter over quarter, year over year? So kind of providing that trend analysis. So this is the section where management really gets to discuss that and really gets to explain how their income tax position changed over time and why that was. And then after this section, the MD&A section, it's really the meat of the 10K. So really the bulk of what we're going to be talking about today is the next section, which is the financial statements, right? And we talked a little bit about this on previous episodes, but we have the income statement, the balance sheet, the cash flow statement, kind of the core financials that every company has to reckon with. And we've talked about those a good deal, but in terms of tax, it's really, you know, it really comes down to the provision for income tax on the income statement. And then on the balance sheet, it comes down to the deferred tax asset or liability, and then the income tax receivable or payable, you know, which we covered in pretty good detail on previous episodes. But in terms of tax, that's really what goes into those main financial statements. And obviously, there's a lot of detail related to non-tax items like revenue, other expenses, other assets, other liabilities that go into those schedules as well. But then after you have kind of the core financial statements, Companies, you know, what most companies will do is, or what all companies will do is they'll provide these lengthy notes to the financials, which are really supplementary statements and schedules kind of breaking down the numbers in these main schedules. And, you know, just kind of focusing on tax for a moment, income tax is always allocated its own note or footnote, as people call them. So this footnote generally consists of a breakdown of the provision for income taxes or total income tax expense on the income statement. It separately states out the current portion and the deferred portion. Remember, we talked about, you know, current plus deferred equals total tax provision. And then it breaks it out by where the expense is actually allocated to, what jurisdictionally. So it'll look at, if it's a U.S. company, it'll look at the federal. So looking at the U.S. federal, it'll look at the U.S. states, how much tax expense is allocated to the federal and how much is allocated to the states and how much goes to foreign. So it'll kind of break it out into those three categories. And then it'll go ahead and look at the deferred tax asset or liability on the balance sheet. And it'll show the kind of material items that make up that figure. So what goes into that deferred tax asset and liabilities on a more granular level. Then it'll dive into a rate reconciliation. 
So we talked a little bit about a rate rec on a previous episode, but this is really walking from the U.S. statutory rate, so 21% for a U.S. corporation, to a company's effective tax rate, or ETR. So that'll be an important part of the tax footnote as well. And then finally, typically, footnote will also include a table breaking down any uncertain tax positions or UTPs a company has accrued. And these are items that are really more likely than not, that are not more likely than not to be sustained by taxing authorities like the IRS upon an audit. And we'll get into uh, UTPs and UTBs a little bit more on a future episode. And we talked a little bit about that in the past as well. So that's really the 10K you know, as a whole. And, and as mentioned, it's really quite detailed and includes a lot of narrative in addition to you know, a really thorough numerical component and lengthy footnote schedules, including all the kind of tax components that we just talked about. So that's a 10K. And then on the other side of the coin, we have the 10Q or the interim or quarterly filing. And this is really much simpler and much less detailed. So these interim reports generally only focus on the financials themselves. It'll have some MD&A section, management discussion. It'll have, you know, any key changes that happen during the quarter, any key changes to accounting principles or other kind of important disclosures of that nature. But they don't include the kind of detailed footnotes and disclosures as in the annual filing. So it's really a lot simpler. And when we think about tax specifically, while the discussion in the MD&A section is generally still present, describing kind of the changes to the ETR and a high-level analysis of that nature, the detailed tax footnote seen in the annual report is really nowhere to be found. So instead, the quarterly filings will either have a very slimmed down footnote without any breakout of the deferred tax assets or liabilities or any rate reconciliation. Actually, some companies won't even have a tax footnote at all in the quarters if there's really nothing material to disclose there. So that's one big difference on the tax side. And then another difference to, to mention here between the 10K and the 10Q is the 10Q actually includes unaudited financial statements. And this is really quite different from the audited financial statements within a 10K. So on the quarters, financial auditors were a public accounting firm. You know, if we think about big four public accounting firms or, or mid-sized public accounting firms or small ones, they don't actually audit the components of the financial statements on the quarters. They merely review it. So that, that term review. And what this means is they essentially make sure the numbers are reasonable analytically. So as opposed to truly agreeing all of the details to what's called substantive evidence, they're really just looking analytically and seeing, you know, does this all make sense? Does this all kind of jive together? And then finally, the last major difference to note here between the annual and the quarterly is really the timing, the timing of the filings. So this does vary by size of the company, but for the biggest of the biggest companies, the 10K is required to be filed within 60 days of a company's year end. So if we have a calendar year company with a 1231 year end, it would be due by, you know, basically the end of February. And then while a 10Q must be filed within 40 days of the quarter. So you can see the 10Q is a quicker turnaround than the annual. And that's really because it's a simpler and kind of less detailed reporting. Of course. Now, Forms 10K and 10Q are annual and quarterly reports that tell us about who a company is and how they've been doing. And part of the reports is the provision for income tax. Let's take a step back here and recap what the annual tax provision is itself, uh, as well as the quarterly, if you want to break that down, Howard. Yeah, so with kind of the definition in hand that you laid out, when we think about back to a core definition of a tax provision, it's really a calculation of all of the income tax components of a financial statement. And we just discussed the detail related to tax that goes into the Form 10K. And you could probably imagine that steps in actually calculating the annual provision would have to result in essentially providing all this detail. 
that we talked about. And on a previous episode, we broke down all the steps of the annual provision process. And, and we discussed that the main components of this are really the current provision. So that's where a company bridges their accounting income to their taxable income. And that's really similar to a tax return. So it's basically, you know, estimating what your current year tax liability is going to be very similar to a tax return where you kind of finalize it. And then there's the deferred provision element, which is where a company really accounts for the future tax benefits or liabilities resulting from temporary or timing differences, net operating losses or credits and attributes of that sort. And then finally, the, the rate reconciliation, where companies you know, really bridge the gap between the statutory tax rate or 21% in the US and the effective tax rate. So those are kind of the main kind of core components that go into the annual provision process. And then, of course, on top of these key components, there is the data gathering component on the front end, right? So you have to get the trial balance, get all the supporting financial calculations, and then obviously you run the calculations, and then you have the kind of data synthesizing on the back end where you create your journal entries and ultimately a tax footnote, which is kind of the end result, and that's what we just discussed. So that's kind of high-level you know, what you have to do in an annual provision process. It all comes down to those core fundamental provision calculations, the current, the deferred, and then the rate rec. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp so we focused on the annual process in the previous episodes let's home in on the quarterly process and the standard methodology used to calculate it can you tell us what the typical standard methodology is the general rule under us gap and, and ifrs2 is to do what is known in the US as a FIN 18 approach. And this is also referred to as an estimated annual effective tax rate or a EAETR approach. And this FIN 18 really gets its name from the old US tax provision standard prior to ASC 740. And this approach is really a far simpler method than calculating an annual provision. And that really makes sense given the differences between the 10K and the 10Q detail, which you know we covered a bit earlier. So at its core, I think there's really four basic steps when it comes down to the FIN 18 approach. So first, and really most importantly, a company calculates its estimated annual effective tax rate, or this EAETR. And this step is really key and kind of fundamental, and we'll get into exactly what this means in a moment. So after you have your EAETR in hand, then secondly, you would apply this rate to your actual year-to-date 
pre-tax income results. So your actual year-to-date kind of accounting income before income tax. And that would yield you your actual year-to-date tax expense. You take that EAETR, you multiply it by your actual year-to-date pre-tax book income, and now you're at your actual year-to-date tax expense. So I think that is you know fairly straightforward so far at least. But then this next step is where it gets a little bit confusing. Because what you have to do here is layer in something called discrete items. And we'll get into exactly what these are a little bit later as well. But once these are layered in the discrete items, this will lead you to actually calculating your actual year-to-date effective tax rate. And you would do that by taking your actual year-to-date tax expense after you consider these discrete items, and then you would divide it by your actual year-to-date pre-tax book income. So, you know, it's basically a lot of math here, but this element of discrete is a little bit quirky and it only is applicable on the quarter. So we're going to talk about exactly what that means shortly. But after you do this, once you go with actual year-to-date ETR and your actual year-to-date tax expense, you would take this actual year-to-date tax expense after the discretes, you would subtract it by the actual year-to-date expense incurred in previous quarters. That result would be the incremental year-to-date tax expense that needs to be recorded for this particular quarter through a journal entry, right? So you're really looking at year-to-date you calculate this actual year-to-date expense number, and then you back out the year-to-date expense booked previously in previous quarters to get what the incremental kind of journal entry is for this quarter. And like I said, we're going to break down each of these steps in detail in a minute. But just to start, when we think about this process just as a whole, it really all hinges around this concept of the estimated annual effective tax rate. So this is calculating an estimated ETR for the whole year even though the quarters are completed before the full year is over. So it's a little bit tricky to grasp that concept. But in Q1, Q2, and Q3, companies are estimating their ETR for the entire year, right? The whole entire year they're estimating their ETR for. So they're not just going through an actual year-to-date approach where they're just looking at actual year-to-date data, but instead they're working with projected data for the full year, the entire year, or all 12 months of the year. And this estimated annual effective tax rate is calculated by taking estimated annual tax expense and dividing it by estimated, once again, annual pre-tax book income. So it's really the same formula as the actual effective tax rate, which remember is just total tax expense divided by pre-tax book income. But you're layering in this projection element, this estimated annual element to it. And the question is, why is this the case? Why can't companies just kind of take the actual year date numbers like they do at year end and calculate their provision that way? And the logic is really that since tax is assessed based on annual or full year earnings, as in when a company files a tax return, it's really an annual exercise because this companies really need to look at their quarterly provision the same way. So as if tax will be assessed on this annual basis, because that's really how it is assessed. So, and it really is important because some companies have different earnings cycles throughout the year. So, you know, utilizing projections kind of smooths this out and gets to a more realistic income number that the actual annual tax would be assessed on. And the probably the easiest way to understand this is through a quick example. So if we took a retail company, does the majority of their sales, you know, around the holiday season, they may have, you know, relatively flat income for the first half or the first three quarters of the year. But then at the end of the year, you know, in, in December when the holidays hit, they're in a significant income position. You know, they really have a boom in business in that last month of the year. And that significant income is ultimately what they're going to be taxed on, right? They're going to be taxed on their full year earnings. That's sort of why this, that you need, companies need to do this exercise and, and why it's based on the annual full year number 
is because ultimately the tax results are going to be dictated by the full year results. And it wouldn't really be accurate to be looking at tax on a quarter by quarter basis. And before diving into those next steps of the process, you mentioned uh, an estimated annual pre-tax income and estimated annual income tax expense as the two key metrics going into calculating the estimated annual effective tax rate. Can you provide some more details on that? How are these two items determined? Yeah, so you know the estimated annual pre-tax income is generally based on management forecasts. The tax department usually gets these from the FP&A or Financial Planning and Analysis Group, or just the finance group in general. And as noted, this forecast, it really should be up to date. And so generally it's is updated each quarter and the tax group must request a new forecast every quarter. And just as a sidebar, you know, some companies, they actually may update their forecast a lot more often than that. You know, some updated on a almost daily or, or weekly basis. So the tax department really needs to constantly be monitoring this, making sure they're kind of working with the latest when they're doing their quarterly provision. And then meanwhile, the estimated annual pre-tax income, but estimated annual tax expense is generally calculated by starting at this projected pre-tax book income for the year and then layering in projected permanent differences. Once again, for the year, projected permanent differences for the annual period, and then multiplying this by a tax rate. And then you would layer in your tax credits or any other tax affected adjustments to get to an estimated annual tax expense. And once again, these tax credits and other tax affected adjustments, that's all projected for the year as well. So everything that we're talking about is really estimated annual numbers up until this point. And you know, one really important thing to note is in this FIN 18 approach, generally companies are not nearly as focused on their deferred tax asset or liability profile as they are at year end. In fact, since temporary differences don't impact the effective tax rate, don't impact the ETR, you know, as we have discussed on previous episodes, generally these are not even computed and updated on a quarterly basis. Instead, companies really home in and focus on their ETR and, you know, the drivers of such like a permanent differences and tax credits, you know, as we just kind of discussed. And generally for, from a temporary difference perspective, usually they will just throw in kind of a, a high level estimate number into the provision or really not even worry about it at all. So that's just really an important practical point. And one that I do want to emphasize is another really core difference in looking at the quarterly or the interim provision versus the annual. And, you know, one that really saves companies a ton of time, you know, not having to deal with all the intricacies of of temporary differences on the quarters. In which case, I think it's time to introduce our audience to a very concrete sounding um, acronym, uh, abbreviation, if you will, EA. ETR, that's the Estimated Annual Effective Tax Rate, and we're going to use that to shorten things up as we go along. Now that we've been through the EA ETR, the Estimated Annual Effective Tax Rate, and understand what goes into that, tell us about the other steps in the quarterly process. What comes next after calculating the EA ETR? So after you calculate this metric, the, the EA ETR, which is kind of a mouthful, After you calculate that, you need to apply that against the actual year-to-date pre-tax book income. And that gives you the actual year-to-date income tax expense for the particular quarter that you're in, right? So if you're in Q3, we're talking nine months of year-to-date activity. If you're in Q2, it would be six months. And then if you're in Q1, that would be three months. So now that you have this kind of actual year-to-date 
income tax expense in hand, which we just arrived at using the forecasted rate times the actual year-to-date income. You have, you know, this results the actual year-to-date income tax expense. But, you know, one thing that's really important to note here is up until this point, we haven't considered extraordinary or unusual items. So this EA-ETR approach does not include any extraordinary or unusual items that occur during the year and are kind of not part of normal business operations. So instead, these are completely excluded from this EA-ETR, completely excluded from your estimated annual effective tax rate. And it's layered into the actual tax expense separately, right? So really important to note that, that the EA-ETR doesn't include these kind of special items that aren't really regular or normal business operations. And the way you kind of do layer in these extraordinary items is through this mechanism of a discrete item. So as mentioned, these discrete items are really extraordinary or unusual items that are, and the way you account for them is you fully account for them in the period incurred. So very different than being included in the EAETR and being kind of spread out more evenly throughout the whole year. It's really included just in that period, just in that quarter that it incurred. So just a few examples of discrete items to maybe uh, shed a little bit of color on the concept. So one, and and we've talked a little bit about this on a previous uh, episode, but I think we get into it more on a future one as well. But one is the excess tax benefit on non-qualified stock options or non-quals. And this is also known as a windfall. So so that's one item that is generally a discrete item, kind of an event that is extraordinary and unusual. It's, It's something that shouldn't be built into the estimated annual effective tax rate because it's unusual. It doesn't happen the same way, you know, in the same kind of nature every year, every quarter. Another one is the impact of changes in tax law or a tax rate change. So once again, this isn't something that is kind of, you know, normal business operations. This is very different. This is kind of an unusual item. Another one is the return to provision impact. So we talked about, you know, the true up or return to provision where you look at your prior year provision and your prior year return, and then you true that up on your next year's uh, provision for the difference. And that's usually run through as a discrete as well. And that's both, you know, on the federal side, the state side, and then ultimately the international side too. And that's because it's really kind of like a one-time event in the year and doesn't really factor into kind of normal business operations. So that's just some examples of discrete items. And once we layer these discrete items in, we get to, you know, our adjusted year-to-date income tax expense. And, and that's all in through the entire year up until this point. So it's always, you know, year-to-date income tax expense as opposed to just for a particular quarter. You know, we're not looking at just Q3. We're looking at the first of the year all the way to the end of Q3. So for a calendar year, we're looking at 1-1 to 9-30 as opposed to just looking at 7-1 to 9-30. It's a full year, year-to-date. And then we would take the actual year-to-date tax expense after we consider all these discrete items, which we just talked about, and then you would divide it by the actual year-to-date pre-tax book income to give us our finally actual year-to-date effective tax rate figure. And while the EAETR is really important in looking at interim, it's really, you know, this metric is also very important, this actual year-to-date effective tax rate, which includes the impact of discrete items. That's, that's also another really important metric for companies to look at as well. Because that's truly their effective tax rate all in, you know, with everything included, you know, even those unusual items, even the discretes. So finally, once you have this actual year-to-date effective tax rate, kind of your all-in number, and you have your actual year-to-date tax expense, right, which is how you get to it, 
you know, as we mentioned before, you would subtract out any tax expense you kind of accrued in previous quarters to figure out exactly what you need for this quarter, you know, to accrue a book as a journal entry for this particular quarter. So, you know, once again, the quarters are really all focused on year to date information. So you're not just looking at the quarter in a vacuum. You're looking at everything that happened, you know, up until the end of the quarter. And then you need to book an incremental tax expense or tax benefit for that quarter. You would need to back out everything else that happened in quarters previous, right? So if you're in Q3, you would need to back out what's been booked in Q2 to see what the incremental amount of tax you need to book to your financial statements and your trial balance is. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. So those four steps of calculating the EAETR, applying it to actual year-to-date results, layering in discrete items, and then backing out previously recorded quarterly expense to get to this quarter's tax expense makes sense. Now, is there any circumstance where possibly not all entities in a consolidated group would use this estimated annual ETR approach? Could some companies have to deal with leaving some entities out? Yeah, so the, you know, I think there's really two key exceptions to kind of using this EAETR, this estimated annual effective tax rate approach. This would be where certain entities are excluded and kind of just treated separately from the EAETR calculation. So the first is a circumstance where there are jurisdictions that a company operates in that have pre-tax losses. All right? So they're not in an income position, they're in a loss position. And in this loss position, they're not able to recognize any tax benefit. So they're not able to benefit from these losses to save on any tax or offset any income. And this is generally due to these jurisdictions being in a full valuation allowance position. So we talked a little bit about valuation allowances in, in previous episodes, but you know this is a mechanism, if you're not more likely than not to recognize your deferred tax assets to benefit from your deferred tax assets to you know, recognize a benefit in the future from these DTAs, then you have to offset it with a valuation allowance. And basically, you know, if you're in these jurisdictions with these losses where you're never going to recognize a benefit, this would generally happen if you, know, you expect these jurisdictions to continue in losses and never to reverse to income where you could you know, carry forward that loss and offset that income to reduce tax. If you're in that sort of position, then generally this would be a circumstance where you have to exclude that particular jurisdiction, the entities in those jurisdictions from your EAETR. So that's, that's number one. And then number two is this could also happen where you need to exclude certain entities, certain jurisdictions from this EAETR. If you can't reliably estimate pre-tax income or, or loss for the year for these particular jurisdictions or particular entities. 
So if for some reason, you know, the country that you're looking at, you know, is in a situation where they just can't project out their results for the year, this would be another situation where, you know, they simply can't use the EITR approach for these particular entities in these jurisdictions because, well, they simply can't make the correct projections, right? And that could be for several, you know, reasons. Maybe the business is just fluctuating so heavily where you you just have no idea, you know, what the results are going to be in the future. So that's another example. And, you know, in this case, if this occurs where entities are excluded from the EAETR, what you would do is you would have their actual results. So their actual year-to-date pre-tax income and their actual year-to-date income tax expense. You would have those included within the calculation. So within the quarterly calculation after the application of the kind of core estimated annual effective tax rate. So you would calculate your estimated annual effective tax rate. You would apply that to the income of all the entities that need to go into that calculation. So, you know, you wouldn't consider these kind of jurisdictions that are really need to be excluded. And then you would layer in their income and their expense to basically this calculation after you compute this EAETR. So it's basically kind of layering in an additional step to kind of our four-step process that we talked about before. And I understand there is another quarterly provision methodology as well. Why is that? And how does this one compare to the FIN 18 approach? The other kind of potential approach on a quarterly or an interim provision is to basically do it in the same fashion as an annual provision. And that's where you're not using projections and you're just using actual year-to-date income to compute your effective tax rate and your tax expense. So it really basically is the same process as a full year provision, you know, which we talked about a little bit earlier and we've covered in detail on previous episodes. And, you know, certain companies will use this kind of, you know, what I like to call full blown interim provision methodology for a variety of reasons. So there's, you know, a bunch of reasons that companies would potentially do this. And while it's not technically correct methodology as a general rule, there are exceptions that would actually make this a requirement. So it would actually mean that a company needs to do this. And one of the reasons is having an inability to forecast an effective tax rate. And we alluded to this a little bit for specific jurisdictions or specific entities before, but, you know, basically this analysis of if you are unable to forecast an effective tax rate, if you're unable to make projections, it's really a facts and circumstances kind of based analysis. And typically a sensitivity analysis is utilized to determine if kind of reasonable changes to a forecast would cause maybe disproportionate changes to the effective tax rate. And this could happen in the case where pre-tax book income or right, the denominator in the ETR calculation is break even. So your pre-tax book income is basically break even. But then you have really material uh, permanent differences or other rate drivers that cause major changes you know, to your tax expense. So that affect the numerator, but not the denominator. And what that could potentially do is cause huge swings to the rate given, you know, a really small denominator, right? By break even, let's just say it's, you know, a dollar. You know, if you have changes to the numerator, it's going to cause massive swings to the estimated annual effective tax rate. So this could be a potential reason why you wouldn't be able to use that EAETR approach and you just kind of need to use actual data just like you would at year end. So what are the practical differences between how companies do quarterly versus annual provisions? We touched on some of these, but just to kind of summarize and ring fence this just at a high level. First off, interim or quarterly provisions are much quicker, right? They're they're much easier to do and, and just take less time. 
That's first. Second, these interim provisions generally don't include tracking exact amounts of deferred tax assets and liabilities, and therefore, you know, exact amounts of temporary differences that go with them. And hence, this is one of the reasons why, you know, they're really much quicker. So the focus of quarterly is really on the material permanent adjustments, the material permanent M1s, and then other rate drivers. So things like credits as well. And it really focuses in on the income statement as opposed to the balance sheet, you know, really honing in on the rate really focused on the effective tax rate as opposed to kind of those items on the balance sheet, like the deferred tax asset or liability. And then remember that while year end, kind of everything must be truly correct and scrutinized by a full audit. Auditors are only conducting an analytical review on the quarters. So the numbers still need to be materially correct, but the auditors are looking at it from a much different perspective, much different lens. So for this reason, the focus is really on the income statement. The focus is really on the effective tax rate. And it really shifts away from kind of the deferred tax assets and liabilities. Like it is, you know, a really big focus on year end. So listeners of this podcast have heard you advocate for using tools like software to assist in calculating the income tax provision. I'm wondering how specifically can tools beyond Excel assist with the calculations needed for the quarterly provisions estimated annual ETR. And a follow-up, for companies who already may be using software, are there ways to use it that you think are being underutilized or overlooked? Yeah. So, you know, I think in this case, software, we could talk about some kind of obvious features of software, but one, it's great to kind of import, you know, pre-tax book income. You know, it could also pull in other projected figures like permanent differences or tax credits. And then, you know, what it could even do is besides, you know, kind of importing these projected numbers is it could even pull numbers from a previous year and pull those into a current quarter to kind of automate those. And oftentimes that happens if, if a figure is not that material or a company doesn't expect a particular adjustment, let's just say a particular permanent adjustment to change from last year to this year, they may just use the same numbers last year. So, you know, for more immaterial items, this is very common and software could really help do that kind of in an automated fashion as opposed to having to do that manually Excel. Another really good function of a very efficient and fully functional quarterly software is it's really a great tool to easily exclude particular entities from that EAETR, the estimated annual effective tax rate calculation, which is really much harder to do in Excel. So we talked about those exceptions, which may call for excluding certain entities from this estimated annual effective tax rate approach. And this is really difficult to do in Excel, particularly if you have, you know, dynamic data kind of changing from quarter to quarter, or if you have, you know, an entity that needs to be excluded that wasn't excluded in the past or vice versa, you know, an entity that previously was excluded that now needs to be brought back in, you know, really difficult to kind of look at that dynamic data in Excel and update that in real time and update the way the calculations are kind of working in there. But in software, it really could be as easy as basically a checkbox. So, you know, I think this is often an area that people kind of overlook in Excel because it's really difficult to kind of manually track. And then even in certain software on the market, it's really not built for this functionality of kind of excluding certain entities from this estimated annual effective tax rate calculation either. So often people kind of just ignore it and it really could be material to your ETR and to your operation. So it's important to kind of get that right. And then, you know, the last point with regards to software in particular is we talked about quarterly, the fact that you have less time to work with your quarterly provision than your annual and the fact that it's a really quick process. Some days, some companies will only have, you know, a day or two to kind of turn around their interim provision. Some companies I've even seen only have a couple of hours 
to turn around their interim provision from the time they get their uh, trial balance from the accounting department. So you really want to be assured that your calculations are working correctly, that all your numbers are flowing and that, you know, there's no issues with errors in the workbook and no issues with any of the core kind of calculations occurring behind the scenes. And that's what software really provides assurance with, you know, a good software will be able to kind of calculate these things, you know, for you. Obviously, the user will always need to be there to kind of review their work. But a good software will kind of take a lot of the burden off you and, and kind of assure that the data is in a controlled environment and you're able to kind of move through quickly with accurate calculations. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. And we want to thank Howard for joining us on this very informative discussion. If you like today's podcast, you're going to love the other shows in Cross-Border Solutions Tax Podcast Suite. That's the Fiona Show R&D Tax Credit and the Fiona Show Transfer Pricing. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's the Fiona Show Tax Provision, and we'll keep you up to date on the latest in tax provision. I'm your host, Matthew DeMello. John Alex Busey is our audio producer. Stephen Markow is our associate producer. Mary Lynn Mitchumstrom is our executive producer. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. We'll catch you next week. Music.